Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Mark Smith and I'm the tech editor of Resident Advisor. This week's exchange is with Laidback Luke. He's a megastar in the EDM world, but there's more to the Dutchman than most people realize. In the mid-90s, he released a string of timeless house and techno tracks that are still mainstays in the bags of some of the scene's key DJs. Although he became frustrated with the limits of the sound, 90s house and techno never fully left his heart, as RA's Matt Unicomb heard from his New Jersey home late last year. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The exchange with laid-back Luke is up next. think of last night first techno set in a while yeah i've done like more of underground sets and when i do back to back with my wife we keep it more underground and deep house but this time i really wanted to grab back to the, the strict techno roots flash factory is just the the perfect club for that and usually when i um, when i dj i take a lot of requests but for this night i didn't take any requests did no. you get any yes and i told them this night is for me. It's awesome you're coming, but I'm just going to do me and the old me. Any proper techno requests? The no, Jeff was, Mills track? No. And, uh, so actually on the night, there were a couple of Jeff Millses coming in. So I, I wasn't actually planning on playing the bells. But yeah, I think it was Scott from Satellite Records. Scott, uh, shout out to Scott because he was the first one to bring me to the United States. In 1997, I played a big warehouse party of his playing a techno set, all vinyl and everything. And he was the one requesting Jeff Mills the bells last night. So I had to drop it. Even though you were making house, you were also playing techno in those days. Yeah, so I, um, my weakness... Or maybe my strength is that I got in touch with house music in the beginning of the 90s. So I was uh, in my teens in the beginning of the 90s. And back then, house music was everything, was trance, was acid, was techno. And that type of mindset never left me. So electronic music for me is the same family, it's the same game, it's the same situation. And over these decades, it got totally segregated but i just see it still as as one whole so when i started as a producer i was making mk style house music but i was also fascinated by uh, stuff by carl craig and dj pierre these are the top guys in that kind of time yeah carl, absolutely yeah. so uh the guys from chocolate puma who were the good men back then they groomed me on uh carl craig and they showed me how they would build up and use elements and DJ Pierre as well. DJ Pierre was able to hold a loop for like two minutes without you being bored of it. And it was, these were such a good loops and such like subtle buildups. And that really inspired me to try and make some techno as well back in the day. That's the thing about music from back then. When you listen to so much of this 90s house that's still considered good, it's pretty stripped down, as you say. It's oh, yeah. just like a nice drum loop 
cool bass line, and then like a couple of samples. Well, what you need to realize is that this was a reaction, an opposite reaction from the music from the 80s. The music from the 80s was super polished, super marketed, and these were just kids with a drum computer, like a Sampler? 303, oh, yeah. and they were just jamming out, and it sounded so polar opposite of what was on the radio and everything. And this was a true revolution. So basically any bip of or bop that came out of a machine like that was incredible. Yeah. What was your first equipment then? Well, I started making music on a, an Amiga computer using Fast Tracker. And then I quickly was able to take over my uncle's uh, Atari ST. So I switched over to Cubase and I had a... It was an Akai sampler. I think it was an X7000, which held floppy disks that had a 1.4 megabyte capacity. And you could sample two seconds maximum. You could sample four seconds if you if you would lower the bit rate. And that was it. And yeah, when I got that sampler, um, you know, I could use 909 sounding hi-hats and stuff like that. And uh, it instantly sounded uh, way more professional than before. So how long... Between trying out producing, how long until you then put out a record? So that must have been about, well, three years only, really. Yeah. I had the luck that Gaston from the, from the Good Men lived in the same village as I did, and he had attended the same high school as I did. So he was playing my uh, end-of-the-year school party, and I just came up to him with a ca- cassette tape saying, hey, I, I was on this school as well. Mind you, he had already had like top 40 hits and uh, he was a, a famous guy. So I went up to him with my demo tape and showed him my music. And funny enough, I didn't hear from him for months. Somehow I found out his phone number and I called him up once and I said, listen, did you hear my demo tape? And he was like, oh, no, didn't get time yet. So I gave him another extra month called him back again and he, and just said to him like listen if it sucks just tell me it sucks and you know i won't bother you again i won't stalk you um but i would just like to know what you think of it two weeks later he had heard it and he was pretty much blown away by it and he wanted to speak to me in person and we just kept in touch and uh, i became his student and at a certain point they were moving studios and they had so much equipment that it wouldn't fit in their new studio space. So everything they had left, they put in my bedroom. And so I could finally start making music on like synthesizers. I got a mixing desk, a Tascam uh, mixing desk. And I remember going to high school, reading through all these manuals. And kids in my school were like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm making electronic music now. And yeah, I grew up using a lot of hardware. Who were the Goodman? Doug Woodman. Yeah, so... For people who might know. DJ Ski and Dobra, they had a huge hit with a, a tribal track called Give It Up. Like, when I came through, they had a techno label as well called Touche. I think they even released the first Shade releases on there. And I had the luck that my third release was on Touche as well. I recently found out that Adam Bayer played my Touche release on his first gig ever for uh, Tiga in Montreal. We just recently tweeted about it. It's so incredible to, to read that. So what's your relationship with these older tracks? Because for a lot of people, this is basically perfect house music. Yeah. And it's pretty amazing that you made this when you're like 18 or 19. Yeah. Some of these groove alert records. Yeah. It doesn't sound like a 19-year-old. It's like we were oh. saying, nice drum loop, swing, Yeah. cool sample. What do you think about this when you hear it now? Does it seem primitive or can you Absolutely. still see the value in it? Yeah, it's, it sounds very primitive. And and I know my flaws from back then. And I realized that I was horrible at mixing down, for instance, and that I was actually trying to make something else that was in my head, but it came out like this. And I got really lucky that the rest of the world liked it. But when I hear it back, I'm like, you know, this is still just work in progress. This is this guy just developing and to be really honest, after 10 years of producing, I finally got to be proud of my tracks in terms of engineering, mix down, sample use, and, and everything before that was just experimenting. So how has your production process changed 
I guess it's changed a lot since then. Oh, I'm mostly using digital. Yeah, I so. just I just use a laptop now, and I make tracks really quickly. I back in the day I would easily take two weeks to finish a track. Nowadays it's just four hours, and it's not because I I make EDM or anything. It's just because I have so much experience now. I've been producing for um, well, this is going to be year twenty five now, so. Everything I want and everything I can think of, I can just simply do. And with the modern technology, all you need is a laptop nowadays. I guess the tracks you're making now are pretty different to this stuff. The stuff you're making now is more about melody, where the older ones were about maybe groove. Yeah. Were more important. Absolutely. So that's a pretty big difference. It is. Yeah. What do you think about that? It is. That's a very good observation. The thing is with my older tracks and basically with techno, if you strip it down, and obviously a lot of people will say, yeah, techno is multi-layered and everything. Fair enough. But a lot of it is just programming drums, programming blips and blops at certain, in certain timings. And that's one of the things that broke me as a techno producer at one point because I was doing quite well. I, um, you know, I was coming up with names like Adam Bayer, Marco Carolla, and Umek. Those guys are the same age as I am. And, yeah, those used to be my peers. We, we would, you know, before the gig, we would speak to each other and talk about music and stuff like that. And I remember as a techno DJ wanting to make tracks, I couldn't do it at a certain point uh, anymore because it was just so loopy. It was kind of like, mind you, I still love techno, but... If you strip it down, it's kind of like a washing machine sound. Take away the hi-hat. More compression. Take out the kick drum. Okay, wait, 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 wait. Put back the kick drum in. And it's as elementary as that, really. And I come from a musical family. I have a musical background. I have a super cheesy Filipino karaoke ballad background i love singing along to tracks and i wanted to infuse that in my techno but i found that if i did it wasn't techno anymore and being a quite a successful techno dj at a certain point i couldn't make music anymore i couldn't do the loops anymore i i wasn't getting excited about it so a lot of people when they first hear my name and they know about my techno background will say Oh, you just went for the big money, right? So now you're like an EDM guy and, and, you know, it was you switched for the money. And no, that's wrong. I switched because I couldn't be creative as a producer anymore. And techno made me almost quit making music and DJing. So I had to switch. And mind you, the big money maker, so this was in early 2000s, the big money maker was trans music. EDM was non-existent. Well, that's in the early days. If you wanted to make money, you would have gone to make trance straight yeah, away. Yeah, like you wouldn't have been making this like garagey no. house. Trance was the thing. Yeah, I just said to myself, I want to be able to make everything I want. I want to infuse vocals. I want to have song structures and everything. And so I ended up being forced to restart my career and to rebrand my name because this I totally need needed to do something else. So the first couple of years, I was actually making Electro Clash type of stuff, Daft Punky stuff. And um, I got signed by Virgin the Netherlands and so started doing videos. And But the whole EDM thing came way later. And, uh, you know, I've always fought hard to make my type of music the biggest type of music because music is so powerful. It just needs to be able to inspire or reach anyone and everyone and most songs you, you hold such a, a good memory and i always wanted to have my music have that and i've really fought for my style to become the biggest and my style became edm and so with that came the money and the success and what what not but yeah this was a long and hard road when you compare like the different kinds of music do you see how maybe these kind of tracks have a different effect on the dance floor? Maybe with this older, more loopy stuff, it's more about like being hypnotized or having this, I don't know, internal experience. Absolutely. And then when you're playing more this more melodic, you know, big room sound, 
then you see a more outward, like everyone jumping around, screaming, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. What do you think about the difference? So the hypnotic part of music is is the basics of where this type of music came from, Detroit techno, acid house. It was always about the hypnotizing loop, and that's the essence of house music. And for sure, the, the music I make now is more of an outward reaction, forcing people into climaxing, into, into jumping. Absolutely. But in my techno days, we had a similar energy going on. I could safely say we had both the hypnotizing going on and the outward dancing because the energy was just so much higher than it is now. So for this Flash New York set, I dove into some old The Advent tracks and Surgeon tracks. And the BPMs were so high back in the day. It was about 140 BPM techno. And to me, that's, that's how techno used to be. Do you think no matter what kind of music someone's into, just say someone's into Diplo and Major Lazer and New and all this kind of thing, and then you take someone else who's into, like, Surgeon, do you think it all just comes down to fun at the end of the day? Or people are looking for different things from music? Well, both. Yeah. And it's about an escape. And it's about not being at the office or not being worried about your homework. It's about letting go. It's about... Maybe being just the loser at home and being the guy on the dance floor and things like that. That's the essence, absolutely. And what has always boggled me about the modern generation of underground but overground music lovers as well is that people are just so focused on these little niches. I often wonder, do techno people only eat the best steak each and every single day for a decade? And do EDM people only eat fast food each and every day? So truth is, the majority doesn't. Sometimes you eat great steak, sometimes you go to the McDonald's. And and for me, it's the same with music. So I really love all of it. I love Diplo, but I love Surgeon as well. Yeah, you're very lucky in that sense, I think. Because most people naturally create these weird categories for themselves, don't they? And when you really think about it, like, it all just comes down to fun at the end of the day, I guess. Yeah. You know? Maybe just that the result on the dance floor looks a bit different. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said before, nothing is more beautiful than, than hearing that one song and and remembering where you were when you heard that song. Maybe you were kissing a girl. Maybe you were at an after party. Maybe you met these awesome people. That's the power of music. Where does the satisfaction come from now? Do you just love playing to as many people as possible and having as many people as possible hear your stuff? Like, what's the, well, the, latter, the drive? Yeah, yeah, the latter is still super important to me because I've always believed in that I had the voice and had the ability to to give a lot of people these good times but to me it's not important to how many people i play as long as it goes off so even if it's just a living room with, with four people going off that's great but a f- festival with fifty thousand people is fantastic too truth be told if i'm if i'm playing for fifty thousand people and it doesn't go off i am bummed the rest of the week so you know it, it could work both ways Another thing about your music, I think, of course you made some like loopy drum tracks, but when I think about my favorites from this 90s time, they all have this like emotional quality. It could just be some cool groove, but there's always some like nice sample that gives you like a certain like nice feeling. Yeah. I guess, and you're, you're doing the same thing now with, for a lot of people. Yeah. Do you see that this emotional quality is being important absolutely yeah you know every song is just a package of energy that can give people that energy and even in my edm nowadays i'll I'll always try and have something weird in there or weird or quirky in there that stands out or that does something interesting because otherwise music is just 2d like that you know and and um should be more music is a is a very emotional thing and um yeah, you should absolutely utilize that. Yeah. Whether someone likes your music or not, you're so easily able to make music that really that people really connect with. 
What's the secret? Yeah, I'll tell you the secret. <laughs> the secret is actually me being this young little raver kid going out, dancing all night long or all day long at festivals and and listening to these awesome DJs. And I remember, so I had my first break as a techno DJ in the Netherlands at Awakenings Festival. I remember playing after Umek, closing the festival down. This was at 8 a.m. till 10 a.m. in the morning. But I had been a visitor for about two years, so I had been on the floor and had been partying, and I knew exactly what the crowd wanted and needed there. So I started my set, and I was just imagining me being on the dance floor and what I would want now. And this kick-started my career because people came climbing up onto the DJ booth asking who the fuck I was and where I came from and how the hell did I turn that place upside down so hard. And that's what I did last night at Flash Factory New York as well. I was like, okay, so if I was a techno kid right now and I would be dancing right now, what would I want? Which turn of events can I can I play right now to make this memorable and I often dive back into how it feels to be on the dance floor as one of the crowd. That applies no matter where you're playing. Like you could be playing some, what are these huge, like t- Tomorrowland. These <laughs> yes, Tomorrowland. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it absolutely applies. Yeah. It absolutely applies. And shocking to me is that a lot of DJs don't know this, see this. And so sometimes I listen to DJs as well and I'm just dancing and then I'm stopping. And, you know, whenever you feel like you need to take a drink on the dance floor or you need to go and talk to someone or go walk out for a minute, then you know the DJ is not doing a good job. How do you read a crowd when you're playing to so many people? And of course, the bigger you get, the more specific expectations people have about what they're going to hear. So how do you balance that with playing what you want to play? Well, reading the crowd is... um is a unique trait and uh in my corner of edm i see a lot of djs don't even realize that that's what a dj is supposed to do but it's so powerful if you can control a room or can control big crowds like that that's the essence really so for instance i was playing for a big crowd somewhere in florida i'd never played there before and somehow it popped into my mind that i needed to play cancraft zombie nation Okay, so I was like, yeah, whatever, let's do it. So I dropped it, and all of a sudden, this whole crowd starts chanting some university uh, chant for it. And I, I came off the decks, and I was like, what, what happened there when I dropped it? And the promoter said, it's like this famous university that everyone goes to, that everyone's super proud of. And somehow I felt that. And so when I play, I, I feel a lot of that kind of thing those kind of things and I kind of tap into like the mental aspect of where the where the group wants to go and so yeah. how do you do it in such a front of a big crowd like surely the bigger the crowd gets the harder it is to read because you have one group of people over there talking yeah the people in front of you might be going crazy you know like so that's a good point what do so you what do you look for what a DJ does so if I would come with like a bag of hits And actually, I could compare it a lot with sex. So if you come with a bag of hits and you just smack them in in their faces with it, it'll have a different effect than if you massage those groups of people in. So I'll massage a little bit of the group on that side. Then I'll massage the group on that side. So you're basically looking to see, okay, they liked this this trap style thing. Maybe I'll play another one to get them into it. Okay, there's a group over there that liked... And so a at a certain ago. moment, so you might have noticed as, as being a crowd, the DJ will grab you and, and then you're in, you know, and then you're just off. So when everyone's ready, everyone's massaged in, everyone's lined up, then you can go with the, with the kill. And I kind of did that last night as well, where there was this peak of the night where there were a couple of tracks and it just builds and builds and builds and builds. Yeah, that's what a real DJ should do. Well, you did it last night in a pretty expert way. Like, you played the kind of big roomy stuff at the beginning to get the people maybe who might not be so familiar with techno into it. Yeah. And then the more nerdy stuff at the end. Yeah. You know? It's yeah. like you lure them yeah. and then... Well, it's yeah. a, so being a DJ is actually a very cunning kind of thing because you need to lure people in. If you set out to, 
make taste and i feel a lot of djs are missing this as well nowadays to to actually so how i tackle my sets is I, i'll play 50% for what the crowd knows 50% of what i'd like to hear and the golden rule with that is never play a track that i don't like so even if it's the the number one of the world for 10 years and i don't like it i won't play it because that keeps the real passion alive. And then I get to lure the people into what I love and what I like. What happens when a set doesn't go so well? The thing about you guys, compared to maybe some other techno guys now, there seems to be so much more on the line, like so much more at stake. If Marcel Detman is playing in Awakenings and messes up a mix, it's not the end of the world. If you badly mess up a mix at Tomorrowland, you could end up on one of these DJ fail compilations. Oh, yeah. You know, with 10 million views. Yeah, and it's scary because the streams are so big on those festivals as well. It's like you, you'll play for 50,000 people, but there's like 2 million people logged in. And I still do my DJ thing. So nothing is pre recorded, nothing is prepared, nothing is even planned. And if you watch my latest uh, Ultra stream, I'm actually programming cue points on the spot. But I love this edge. So, and- so how does it work? Like, because you're not playing house where you have entry point. You don't have these like uh, easy introductions to mix. You know, oh, you're right. playing like more snippets. Yeah, yeah. It's it's shorter mixes, yeah. but the structure is very similar. So each okay. track has like about 16 bars to mix in. Then comes the big break. Then the drop. That's essentially it. And I have cue points on every one of those moments. So that's how you can skip to... Uh, that's yeah. how you're able to play qu- tracks so quickly or like bring in a break. Yeah, quickly or, yeah. or even longer because usually with a lot of EDM after 16 bars of drop, then there's a break again and everyone stops dancing. But sometimes people want to dance more and I'll just extend it. Yeah. Yeah. What is the perfect breakdown? So the breakdown has a relationship with the drop. And I, I do think the same goes for techno, you know. Um, in techno, we, we could say the breakdown is the, the area where there's no bass in the track. And everyone kind of keeps on dancing. And then when the bass comes back in, that's the drop. Similar to EDM as well. And if there's not a solid drop or not a solid surprise after this whole section of non-bassness... Yeah, then you can screw it up. So the perfect break would just cater to to a great drop. Yeah. yeah. It's so funny, isn't it? These uh, drops became so big. Yeah. Like people expect it now, right? It's like the Pretty highlight much. of a... So if you're playing for an hour, how many drops will there be? Yeah. Well, I only do one per track in the mix out. And I would mix about 40 tracks an hour. So there you go, about 40. 40 tracks. When I used to buy my techno records and would just hang out with the clerk, we would guess how many kick drums we've heard on the night before. So, hey, I was at this party for about five and a half hours. So, okay, so that's a 129 BPM. And then do the math. And so I guess over my time, I heard a, must have heard a million kick drums by now. <laughs> how do you prepare for a set? Because you're playing to so many people, so many people who know you so well and want to hear a certain sound. How do you balance that? It, it works on multiple levels. So, like I said, my I see tracks as energy packages. But the energy can be ranging from mild to intense. So I usually in my head label tracks like a energy level one, energy level two. Say, for instance, if I want to lure a crowd in, I would play an energy level one into a two into a three into a four maybe stick to a couple of fours and then slam it in with a five so the same principles basically apply yeah it's the same as djing with house or techno but in edm there's a lot of different genres as well we have the, the melbourne bounds we have the big room we have the swedish house mafia progressive stuff and we even have uh yeah the, the slower poppier style is it changing bpms like in the set yeah yeah, okay. as well. Yeah. This, is also, this would be pretty tricky then, wouldn't it? Like, this is, would also be a real skill, like keeping the energy up yeah. while switching from one BPM yeah. to another. Yeah, absolutely. I guess that's about timing. And totally f- about timing. And I see a lot of DJs doing it without having a clue. 
but timing is everything. So I see a lot of DJs, like a lot of EDM DJs, randomly dropping a rap song in their sets, which I'm a fan of. But you cannot just randomly do that. You say if you're playing like a a big room section, you should play about three, four, five big room tracks that people are like kind of like fed up with it, and then drop it into a rap song because then all of a sudden there's a a change and people will enjoy it. And so there's there's a bunch of these theories. But like you said with my techno set yesterday as well. So you know I'll play some nerdy nerdy stuff. After one another, and at a certain point, you'll notice that the people are losing interest, and then you switch it up. Then you bring back the industrial or whatever. So- When you're playing out at festivals and this kind of thing, like bigger gigs, are you almost certain? Like you're pretty sure which tracks are going to get a good reaction, or is no. it is it still a gamble? It depends. Yeah, it always depends. And actually, so for instance, the Cancraft example. I played a gig in Germany once, and obviously this track came from Germany, but this was in a different city in Germany, and I played it, and the people hated it because it was like kind of like a folklore type of deal, you know. I mean, you're you're from Berlin, you've noticed、uh, how it gets over there, and so it gets tricky. You never really know, and、uh, and it is a gamble sometimes. And it's the same thing with like.、Uh This EDM world now, like、uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Just because you had a track worked really well with one crowd,、yeah. it's not necessarily going to work. No, the next week. I guess、no. it all depends on what you've played. Well, I guess that's the DJ skill. Also, it all depends on how you've built up to this moment. And, and I'm often so surprised because a lot of EDM DJs are oblivious about this, and they'll just play the exact same set. So, for instance, I've heard EDM DJs play、uh, ultra main stage type of festival in a club、uh, with 200 capacity, and it didn't make sense at all. I feel a lot of DJs are oblivious of that, and that's why I'm saying it's such a, such an important skill to be able to adapt. Do you think the DJ, the level of DJ talent, was higher in the early days? Oh boy. It, absolutely, because yeah, you had to、absolutely. learn to mix. Absolutely, the entry level was, I guess, a lot. If you are listening to this, try and have a look, have a Google at Jeff Mills' end of the '90s sets or Dave Clark. Both of them were very much a, an influence on my DJing. I was very lucky to do a back-to-back with Dave Clark this summer. Yeah, I heard about this Mysteryland. Nowadays, I'm known as one of the most technical DJs around. And next to him, I just felt like like this DJ groupie again. Even playing yesterday, and you know, I did my fair share of tricks, but I just remember Dave Clark being next to me, and this guy rips. But a lot of DJs were like this. I grew up seeing Carl Cox playing with three turntables and scratching, and. The level used to be so much higher, and often when people compliment me on my DJing, I am truly honest when I say, "Thank you for the compliment, but I'm all right." And I still compare myself to to these guys. So, what do you think the implications are? Do you think it's ever going to recover? I don't know. People don't seem to care, and both in EDM land as in techno land or deep house land, I see all these. So-called big names with average DJ skills popping up. Yeah, and, it's a problem across the board, actually. Yeah. So, for instance,、um, I was just recently looking at a boiler room set of James Sabila, who had forty thousand views, which is fine, which is great. And James Sabila is a magician, so technically skilled. And then came across the the newest hype DJ on boiler room, and he had about five million views, mixing crooked loops. Trying to do tricks but not really pulling it off. Yeah, it's such a shame how different that is now. Yeah, I guess as soon as people、uh, get famous from producing, yeah, that's I guess when it all went downhill. Yeah, and it's funny because、um, I often hear about the ghost producing stuff in EDM going on, but people don't realize there's ghost producing going on in deep house and techno. Yeah,、well. there is. We ran a.、Uh, My colleague wrote an opinion piece about it, not naming anyone, but basically addressing the same issue. Yeah, like it's totally widespread. I guess that's the thing because people are so. It's, I guess it's pretty hard to become professional DJ now without being a producer, exactly, without putting out tracks. So, so on the flip side, 
I actually don't really mind because I see DJs and producers as a whole different species. Back in my day, and I sound really old right now, but back in my day, you could be an awesome DJ. So, for instance, Carl Cox. I never expected from Carl Cox to make the most polished tracks, but he was a wicked DJ. So I would always go and see him. I remember Carl Craig starting to DJ in the mid-90s. And he had trouble beat matching, and it was very tough to listen to. But we we got it. Carl is a producer. Carl Cox is a DJ. And nowadays, you're kind of forced to be both. But it's it's very tough to be really good at both. On your kind of level, are people working hard to be good DJs? People are working hard to make entertaining posts on Facebook. Yeah, People are working hard to look like models on Instagram. People should work harder on actually developing DJ skills. And instead of, of wanting to be the DJ Mag Top 100 guy just for the title, actually earn it. Yeah. How often do you see a DJ set that you're really impressed with? Almost ha- never. Has it been like that for a long time? Yeah, and I, and I don't want to sound like a sourpuss, but... I guess being a raver in my day and seeing all these amazing DJs at their prime, so like I said, Carl Cox scratching and stuff like that, and and Jeff Mills on three vinyl decks working the 909, this was a whole different level, man. This was something else. And to me, to come out of that era and and being like a so-called technical DJ, you can only imagine how the rest, you know, looks like to me. Man, maybe you've got to come back to techno fully. I don't, yeah, I don't know. So why I did my set yesterday was more of like a like a hobby thing for me. So, you know, I, I eat a lot at EDM McDonald's, but it's nice to have like a, a red wine and steak sometimes as well. And techno is kind of like my ex-girlfriend. We broke up heavily, but we still kind of kept in touch. And occasionally I see her and I saw her yesterday. <laughs> and this is how it feels like for me. So... It's just for fun, really. Just purely for fun. Go back to the old school. Go back to the roots and, and just play some weird shit. Were you checking new techno releases in advance of this gig? Yes. What do you think of the sound compared to the old stuff? I wasn't impressed. The stuff I played yesterday was more from 2011, 2010. Things by Gary Beck. I love Gary Beck. Ben uh, Clark is ben awesome Clark too. Joseph uh, Capriati. I played a couple of things by him. But a lot of the stuff nowadays just has too little energy for me. And this is what keeps me young as well. I when I'm on the dance floor or in a club, I kind of want to dance really hard or rage. Or, well, you know, I play prime time. So if I would open, it would be a whole different More story. Yeah. Or if I would close into the early hours, it would be deeper as well. But a prime time set like yesterday, I just wanted to go off. What you say about energy, it kind of makes sense that you ended up becoming like a huge DJ. Like if that's the thing that you want to give to people. What I'm most grateful of, and and I really don't care about being famous or making a ton of money and stuff like that. But what I've always known is that I could give people positive energy and, and good hope. And the amount of messages I got of people being depressed or in a hospital and listening to my music and my music helping them that's the miracle of music and that's the real gold right there and that's what keeps me going as well knowing that i can can give people that type of feeling nice to see that no matter what kind of music you're making you're getting a nice reaction from people yeah and it must be a very satisfying feeling it is but it gets tricky as well so for instance uh, me turning my back to techno i got a lot of hate was it like a gradual thing? No. When did it... It was a breakup. So when was this? So this must have been in 2000, something like that. This paired up with my first burnout, which was heavy. I was only 21 years old. And it just forced me to really do everything completely opposite uh, as what I was doing previously. And like I said, I I had this career where I was I was praised by guys like Carl Cox and... Going up, like guys like Umek and, and Bayer. And I really left all of that behind. It was truly a breakup. And So what was the final straw? Just me sitting in, a, in the studio for a month, I think, and not being able to finish a track. 
and just not being able to do more than just program a kick drum and anything on top I felt would suck at a certain time that that just broke me really and I couldn't do it anymore I really didn't want to make music anymore so it's pretty strong feeling I guess yeah and and so you know if you if you see my name on paper and you know EDM and whatever and commercial and this and that and obviously the first reaction would be to say you know you're a sellout and why did you leave techno or it's very obviously you leave techno and and people don't realize still up to this day i i do get a lot of hate from from the from the core and from the from the old school fans how often do you bump into someone that knows your older stuff not very often yeah a lot of them are are like my age now you know about 40 years old and they must have been teenagers when my stuff came out and not a lot of times they don't really go out anymore but from the techno heads or or for instance if i if i want to do a set like this they'll they'll be like you know what the hell are you doing you should stick to edm why why is this are you trying to be hip or you know um have you heard of this dj called butch yeah i kind of heard of him yeah this german dude anyway he's kind of playing this big room house stuff and he also used to make these really cool nerdy loops it's almost the same kind of situation as you he was just saying like yeah man if i went back to this I'm going to just get hate from both sides of the like spectrum. Yeah. It's like uh, no one is just accepting. So, funny story. Do you remember Jamie Lydell's releases on Trezor? Yeah. That was some banging techno, man. And I have a couple of vinyls with him just banging it out. as this. So, in 2004, I bumped into him at uh, Rock Werchter, where I was playing after him. And he was doing his, his new thing, you know, the jazz singing and and i was like dude when did you learn to sing and i remember you releasing stuff on trezor and um funny enough he just told me he singing is just very easy to him and i sometimes wonder if people remember that i would absolutely not give him any hate because i love what he's doing right now and i love this old stuff and frankly i was thinking about this yesterday why is there a divide between underground and overground are we all just cheesy bastards on the overground or are we just snobs on the underground and why can't we be both why can't we i think it's just people just have weird ego issues no one has any right to think someone else's music is cheesy because like look at me i think i like pretty cool house but there's some guy into drone music that thinks my music is cheesy you know See, it's you, just everyone's cheesy to cause, someone cause, yeah because if you analyze it nothing could be cheesier than to have a a certain layer of sounds and then just programming a 4x4 kick drum under it. Like a dumbass uns, 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 uns. That's dance music. But you can take it to the ultimate level of cheesiness and have like, I don't know, the... You can go as commercial as you want and you can go as underground and experimental as you as you want. And somewhere in the middle, that's where you... I wonder what the perfect balance is. Yeah. 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 <laughs> we have to find it. <laughs> Who is yeah. this? It's like some guy that no one thinks is cheesy. Everyone just agrees. <laughs> this one unicorn somewhere. Yeah. Who could it be, I wonder? Justin B. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. I saw you mention in one interview, you basically referred to so much money being on the line at these huge festivals. But the pressure might also be higher. Yeah. I mean, there there is a ton of pressure, and that's why you see a lot of EDM DJs collapsing, preparing and pre-recording their sets because they don't they don't want to screw up. They don't have the experience yet. They don't want to screw up for millions and mil- millions of people. I actually had a EDM DJ contacting me on on direct message last week, and he said, "Luke, I just got to give you a shout out. Thanks to the things you've been putting putting out in the press." I've been starting to freestyle my sets again and it feels so great right now. And so with that pressure, sometimes the actual joy of DJing and just playing tracks disappears. And that's a shame. The pressure is always there, even if it's for four people, you know, the four people in the living room. If you screw up for them, they'll boo you in your face. So you kind of feel the same thing. It doesn't feel so different as when you were playing like... And, and, techno in Netherlands. and this is this is one advice I want to give all bedroom DJs out there. So if you're about to do your first show and you're super nervous about the crowd coming out and w- watching you play, just imagine you being in your bedroom on your set at home playing your set 
to yourself. Keep that vibe. It doesn't matter if there's people around. That's it's a bonus. So now you get to dance with these people or interact. But essentially, that's just it. Me and the decks. That's all. Are you thinking ahead? Like, I assume when you would play more loopy stuff, were you thinking a few tracks in advance? Oh, yeah. Are you still doing the same thing now? Absolutely. That's How what far? I always do. So one big rule that I have that my tour manager needs to take care of is that when I'm DJing, no one gets to tap me on the shoulder because I have this little cloud around my head that is thinking of combinations and like four tracks in advance. And when someone taps me, that little cloud is gone. And I need to restart that. And I have that with EDM. So that's one of my major secrets why I can mix so fast. But yesterday I did that as well. I just switched from the one track to another because I was thinking ahead. So how does someone learn to do this? Do you think you either have it or you don't? Or you can learn to think a few tracks ahead? Because it's pretty hard. Tell you what though. So when I first started as a DJ, my ex-wife, who used to be my girlfriend... She saw me doing this from day one, and she saw me practice on, on SL 1200s. And we would li- often listen to mixtapes of like famous DJs, and then I would, I would often put mine in just to, to see what I mixed last night you know, in, in, the, in my bedroom. And whenever she heard a couple of mistakes, she was like, oh, this is you mixing, right? And that sucked so hard for me. And, but surely enough, because I kept on practicing, she wouldn't be able to hear that anymore. And then after I got into like practicing DJ techniques and tricks and everything and you know it became technically better. So from the bottom I'm really not that good and I actually suck in my my motor, yeah, motor, skills. motor skills and and everything. It's just through a lot of practice and a lot of falling and standing back up again and and improving yourself that I'm at this level now. Yeah. Do you have a mix at home still? Yeah, so uh, in both our houses, we have still have a, like a DJ booth right in the middle of our living room. So I, I have the luck that my wife is a DJ as well. And so sometimes I'm cooking and see, she's DJing techno in the living room and it's, life is good. When I think about these tracks, or a lot of house music, like Moody Man, I somehow don't see why everyone doesn't love this music. Like, I don't see why this isn't mainstream. Yeah. Why is this super melodic stuff, the stuff that everyone likes? I guess there are just... The hooks are easier for people to listen to. Yeah, uh, because do me a favor. Do you want to hum the Moody Man track you're thinking of to me? Yeah, good point. Or one of of mine. So that's the the major part. So, you know, Jeff Mills, The Bells. So that's one of the reasons why it's such a big track. It stays in people's heads. Yeah, and people can hum it. And that's the trick. Um, cameras ready, prepare to flash. You know, that's a hit. Yeah, it's like just say if I showed one of these tracks to my mom, she would yeah. be like, "Yeah, it's nice." And if, but if I asked her like ten minutes later, what did it sound like? Yeah, she probably wouldn't remember, would she? And so the, it's with everything. So uh, you know, I'm hungry for the power. So easy, and that's why it's big. If you're listening to this right now, and you're a young producer. Go and put that in your brain if you want to really put something big out and catchy and touch a lot of people with it. it needs to have like a hooky thing so how were you finding these hooks in the early days a lot of these tracks have some cool little melody that you must have found somewhere yeah so back in the day it used to just be uh, more experimenting just hours and hours of going through well actually i used to start producing with at least two hours of sampling disco records or hip-hop and just digging really Nowadays, it's a very different story. Nowadays, I'll just come up with a concept, and usually the best concepts come from me just taking a shower. (laughs) And in the shower, I'll come up with a vocal or an angle or a melody, and I'll just, yeah, lay it down in the laptop. What do you think about the sounds now compared to the older stuff? For me, the sounds used to be warmer. Absolutely. Like, I I guess because it was mostly samples and analog gear. Yeah, do you think that the sound quality has gotten better in general or it's just different? No, I think it got a lot better. Back in the 90s, we had no clue what real mixdowns were or how we could squeeze out the most out of Sonics. Nowadays, we, we do. And I notice that a lot because I love playing throwbacks. But a lot of times, the mixdown is so different now and so much more in your face, so much more high-end 
and hi-fi, I guess, in the mix. It's tough to mix classics. If you were off at Tomorrowland and you played some 90s House of Techno record, yeah. there's a good chance it won't sound as good. It, yeah. won't sound, it won't fit with the rest of the stuff. For instance, what I still do is I love playing the original Robin S, Show Me Love, which I ripped from CD from back in the day. Yeah, whenever I, I play it, I really need to crank up the volume and even all the EQs. I need to maximize them out to have it still stand out. And it's it's just different sonics now. And and yeah, the the quality really has improved. And mind you, I'm I'm one of the guys that started the Loudness Wars. So I'm one of those dudes. What the fascinating thing about all of this is, and especially thinking of the Loudness War... In all of humanity, the four million years the Earth has been the Earth, this is something new that has never, ever been done. We just recently found out how to maximize volume of music without distorting. This was has never, ever been done before, and that's fascinating. So now we know it, and you see in EDM as well, we, we're taking back again. We're going back into dynamics and and warmer subs and, and that kind of thing. Do you notice this has an effect on the dance floor? Well, a, a good bass massage is always really nice on the floor. So warmer basses, yeah, I'm always up for that. This is the essence of dance music. When I got into house and techno, this was futuristic stuff. People drumming it out on, on just a 909 and a 303. In the whole of humanity... This had never been done before. And with the stuff I'm doing right now, I am always out to search for stuff that hasn't been done before. And, you know, we can all grab back, and this is exactly what I did last night, but we can all grab back to being retro, being 2000, being 1990. But can we peek at, like, what's 2020? Can we push it to what's 2025? With all this new technology... We actually need to focus on what's next and what can we do more. I guess that's that's your personality, isn't it? That's why you've always evolved. Yeah, and it's because it, yeah. I'm just bored with old stuff usually, uh, especially when producing. I I always love looking for the things I've never ever done before, and and this era, and I guess this was especially in 1999. This was the mindset of a lot of producers. A lot of albums came out that said like too future for you yeah. and there was much more innovation yeah in those days wasn't i mean there? remember when uh you know dj pierre used to be future with ph and yeah that kind of stuff so it's uh, to me it's still all about the future and, and maybe it's it's like cheesy edm but i would love to do something that has never been done yeah what's next then what's next yeah yeah so you know in edm land we just had 2016 shatter anything that's uh, 128 bpm so everything is either 150 160 or 110 <laughs> right now in edm land or 100 140 maybe yeah. but 128 it sounds really like old people music right now really in EDM land so as a househead i love it that in the underground everyone's still on the four by four yeah although i'm seeing that you know the the very hip techno people and, uh, you know, the super resident advisor DJs are, are pushing it to 140 and maybe even faster nowadays. So it's fascinating to me that everyone is kind of like picking up on that vibe that's going on right now. It's just so much more energetic. Yeah. You know, you can't like argue with that. Yeah. It just brings more energy to the room. Yeah. I'm always ready to rage, man. I so I I don't use drugs or anything. And to me, it really is the music that needs to give me that energy or gives me that hypnotizing moment. Or yeah. So yeah, in the end, it's the music that'll that'll determine really and how hard the people dance to it. What's the DJ booth like at these top level events? Do you have really good monitoring? You know, like, yeah. along with the... Yeah. Is everything done extremely well? Like, the sound and yeah, this kind of stuff? I, I guess people uh, people listen really well to what's on the rider. And some DJs really want, like, the top notch of the monitoring. I don't really care about it because I, I mix on earbuds 
Oh, yeah, I saw you last yeah, night. And that's my monitors. So I usually just crank them up for the people that are dancing around me. But essentially, I, I don't need them. So you're doing all the mixing in your headphones? Yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah, that's why you don't take them off. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. they're just in the whole time. Yeah, just in the whole time. And it's the perfect sounds directly in my ear. No delays, no room. Or, and yeah. So, well, it's a good idea to have the earplugs yeah. also because then you don't need to wear these headphones Yeah, and I, I the actually, whole time. Yeah, I actually have them really low as well. It's kind of like living room level. So I hear everything perfectly. And do you sometimes switch like if, you, if you're looking for a new track, do you ever turn off? Like, can you just listen to the Yeah, no, so I, I have this track. little mini mixer my dad developed that's kind of like a, a booth splitter. And this makes my DJ booth as if, as if I was DJing back in the day with headphones on. So my, my pre-listening ear is my right ear and my DJ monitor ear is my left ear. And inside my earplugs, I have it exactly that way. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, nice. But in terms of the setup, and this is funny, me and my tour manager always do the sound check still just to make sure the equipment is right, all the buttons are working, all the effects is working. Because, yeah, you know, without good decks, I, I'm, I'm quite technical. So, you know, if, if stuff isn't working, I can't do my thing. But a lot of the, the EDM guys only want to, to know if the, if the confetti is there, if the pyro is there. And they don't really care about the mixer or the decks or anything. And, and what color is the confetti going to yeah. be? No, it's... I it requested get, blue. It, it gets that crazy. It's, it's insane. I heard a, a funny story, like some techno DJ was playing at some festival. She was saying that every time the ice cannons went off, people would cheer. And she was saying like, man, they don't know the difference between white noise. Because they would make this white noise sound, yeah. like this ch- yeah. She's like, they don't know the difference between the track yeah. and the noise the ice cannons is making. Isn't <laughs> so. that insane? I've seen that coming up uh, when Dubfire started putting the white noise in, in the tracks. And that was the... The start of it, really. Yeah. Yeah, insane. Yeah, that's that's a thing for sure. So when was like a moment for you where you kind of realized that you'd crossed over, that you weren't just playing for like techno heads anymore? I'll tell you something from my point of view, because when I used to play techno, I would do combinations that were out of this world so and, and not done. So for instance, I had this golden combination where i w- was playing a speedy j track which had amazing heavy pounding beats but i'd layer majo lady on top of it because it didn't really have beats and it was quite you know and i love singing along and so i thought the combination of both was amazing exactly what i needed and i remember my booking agent uh, seeing the the hate that i got on the forums for doing that he was saying, Luke, you cannot do that kind of stuff. This is insane. Are you kidding me? You're in front of a techno crowd. You're going to play filtered disco or this top 40 stuff. And I noticed that with my new career, if I was in front of a commercial crowd, I could get away by playing one or two techno tracks. In front of a techno crowd, I couldn't get away by playing one or two top 40 tracks. And it was so gave me so much freedom actually and gave me so much confidence to to play more for that kind of crowd and i'll do that nowadays as well if i'm at like an edc orlando and i i know that people know more about electronic music i'll just do a section of 15 minutes of straight up techno and get away with it and it's great so what would happen if you did that 15 minute techno session at the wrong events like people would leave the dance floor. Yeah, yeah. It's actually it's a super big risk. Um, yeah. So, for instance, at festivals, there's a lot of younger crowd, and they have no clue what what techno is. They know trap music and stuff like that. So, yeah. if you do that, you really need to try and lure them in. If I get away with it, I'm I'm always really happy, and sometimes people get really inspired as well and start looking up. Oh, you know what is this type of style that we can't jump to but we still like and yeah what's the sign that a set isn't going well like you literally see people leaving the stage yeah people leaving the stage or people not jumping or cheering anymore and people just like looking around and i guess it's pretty frustrating that's the worst thing for you well as a dedicated dj when i see it happen i just gotta switch it up yeah just save it 
Are you usually able to do it at these bigger events? Well, I'm, are you so experienced that you yeah can, yeah you can I, I can get away with a lot of things. But I'm that type of guy. Even if I have a crowd that's especially catered for me, I'll always try and look up the boundary. So I remember having like a really good crowd, open for anything, and then I started playing chop suey, and that's pushing it. And I love doing that. It's so just to put a little controversy in there. Did it work? Were they into it? Yeah. Yeah, some people lost their... Because it's just so out of the ordinary. It's funny, like, in a way, these people who have no preconceptions, they're the ones that are most, maybe the most open-minded. Yeah. And and I actually like playing for a crowd that's really open to any type of music. Underground, overground, rock, hip-hop, whatever. Because then I feel we can have the most fun together. It can be just so much joy. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned a few times that you get hate. Like, how does it upset you? Like, it used what do you to. think? Yeah. It used to. It used to upset me a lot. It used to frustrate me a lot. Mind you, we get a lot of positive messages in, but if there's one troll, you can just like grind and grind and. But nowadays, I'm like, whatever. So I just did uh, an acid-only set for MixMag, MixMag Lab. And this was like the pure and real deal acid. And my wife is just telling me, dude, you have so much hate on there in the comments. And I'm like, you know, whatever. I, I can't even be bothered. If, if all, I just do this type of stuff for me. I don't really have anything to prove, man. I'm, I've been doing this for so long. And I'm in the luxurious position that I can just do these type of things because... I really enjoy them. Yeah. And if other people do, that's fine. And if other people don't, I'll survive. People are so weird, man, the internet. And it gets crazy because I did a, one of my pioneer showcases this year in Ibiza. And I started with uh, Basement Jacks, Fly Life, which is an absolute classic. But you see the haters on there have no clue what this track is about. And they're hating on the first track I'm playing and saying, oh, this is Luke again with this EDM shit. And listen to those sounds in there. It's like total EDM bullshit. And they don't know uh, Basement Jack's Fly Life. And so to me, you know, that's that's just a sign of ignorance. And I know where I'm coming from. And Well, anyone who's writing that stuff, this negative stuff on the internet is... Yeah. Ignorant. I mean, if you, if you don't enjoy it, just switch it off and, yeah. and, and find something else. Man, I think after some of those tracks you made in the 90s, you can do whatever you want. I guess. I think you get a free pass. Man. I guess. Um, <laughs> the most important thing is that I, I still enjoy it. And, and, you know, with commercial EDM as well. And um, I couldn't be doing it this long without just feeling genuinely happy and passionate about it and and that's what keeps me going keeps me young do you have much unreleased stuff from the 90s yeah yeah yeah. hard drives i must have at least have about three thousand. man you've got to get some of these tracks demos laying around still on all dats but even throughout the the latter 2000s and uh, because in fact like only maybe three out of ten demos make it as tracks or releases, so yeah, I have a ton. Maybe you should put some out, man. I don't know. Put them on vinyl. I don't know if it's good enough. <laughs> man, it's definitely good. Well, if it's like this. <laughs> yeah.